Why did my dad just text me if I wanted a mac and cheese sandwich? <laughs> What's a mac and cheese sandwich? I'm so concerned. He said, how about a mac and cheese sandwich? And I was like, what? Well, do you? <laughs> there is a pizza store near me. Hold on. There is a pizza store near me growing up um, called Tony's Pizza. And they would make literally something called ZD Pizza. Pizza, like pizza crust. ZD pasta on top. Oh my god. Give me. Right? Right? And then they would give you sauce on the side to dip it in and just like it it's wonderful. It's amazing. It's wonderful. We could only go out there every once in a while because of my like travel soccer. It was like way the heck out on a a highway away kind of thing. And yeah, like every time it was like, where do you want to go? Tony's pizza. Getting a giant slice of ZD pizza. (laughs) Yes. What kind of question is that? We have poutine on pizzas in some places. Mm. It's weird. No, it's good. This is just making me want pizza. Okay, we, we gotta move on. Sorry. That's what I had today. <laughs> One of the things about street food in Greece is you go and get a gyro. Um, and the thing is, because it's street food and you're just like going up and they like literally just hand it to you and you walk away. They put French fries on the gyro and it is yes. delicious. Yes. <laughs> so hungry. Like, okay. I literally sat down to record this fucking episode and I'm staring at a piece of chocolate cream pie that I haven't started eating yet because we are in the process of recording. And this is the most torturous opening to an episode. <laughs> at, we're, we're done. Goodbye. Nope. I'm starting. No more food talk. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to My Podcast Knows What You Read in the Dark, a book club podcast made by chaotic people for chaotic people. I'm Caitlin. I'm Lady. I'm Kristen. I'm B. And we are four friends here to tell you what's what about the books we read and loved this month or the books we hated this month. So, Lady, you've been talking about this book and you've been talking about how excited you are about it. Yes. No, I want to hear about all, it right first now. First of all, I just want to point out the almost fight you all had trying to debate oh, what are the cat like what categorizes <laughs> exactly we're, dark we're continuing academia. it so guys i want to i want to talk about dark academia Kristen and lady had like a almost a brawl in our chat <laughs> when we were trying to figure out how what order know, we were going to go and i didn't in know if i should episodes. like cut in and be like y'all leave it for the podcast like <laughs> what is happening right this now this is good podcasting i would not be tamed I kept typing and then deleting it, being like, I need to stop. I need, we need to keep this for the podcast. So I want to know how you guys define dark academia. I'll let them go first. Um, I guess dark academia for me is, first of all, dark. So there needs to be dark themes. It can't just be like a college setting. That's just, that's just a college setting. So it either needs to be the story itself is dark or the characters are dealing with their own kind of dark past or thoughts or something to that effect. And then obviously in an academic setting. To me, it doesn't necessarily mean school. Like dark academia could be like two teachers at a school. A research or something. A right. research or something. Yeah, exactly. But there's an academic component there. I mean, if you ask me aesthetically, I'm talking, we're talking like big dark stone like halls and foggy like grounds big libraries with old leather bound books and that is kind of the feel that you want out of a book is that aesthetic for me i think a lot of the relationship that ends up in dark academia there's this power dynamic to it where there is uneven unevenness in the power dynamic in one way or another whether it's like social class or how that ties into education levels or things like that. I feel like hmm. the good dark academia books I've read have had some sort of like uneven power dynamic that adds a layer to the darkness. Yes, or even like like one character is, you know, charismatic and a people person and the other one has this like difficulty, like something like that that creates an imbalance. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean it can do that that way too is in terms of like just like socialization, right? Like like not just book smarts, but like social and emotional, just the ability to to interact with people, like that's also part of the like imbalance. There's there's definitely for me with Dark Academia, there's an Im- imbalance in at least one way with the characters, um, especially any romantic dynamics. I think that the biggest problem with like defining Dark Academia as a genre is that it's not like meant to be a genre. It's like 
either like a subgenre or it's like Caitlin said, like an aesthetic, right? So it's yeah. about like the vibes and the ambiance. And I feel like there's a lot of things that are labeled as dark academia that miss the mark because they focus on the vibes and they forget to put actual contents in the book. Yeah. Like it's more about like like the buildings look and the characters are dressed. Like they describe all these like, oh my god, I'm wearing a cotton sweater or whatever. That also means that like since it's mostly about the aesthetic that people can read the same book and have like wildly different experiences with it like even amongst us Kristen loved These Violent Delights by Micah Neverver and I freaking hated it and I think that's like this problem with like putting the aesthetic first and like, like marketing it as an aesthetic before actual content in the book well, that's why I hesitated because like you asked for a definition and I was like, every time I've read a book that says dark academia, I've been burned. It's so I don't know. <laughs> well, and like if we go based off of the description that I gave outside of the aesthetic, the description that I gave combined with the description that B gave, we just that we're talking about the plot of looking for Alaska. And that <laughs> is not true. dark academia at all. But it yeah. fits the bill of what we just said to a T. Kristen, go off. I agree with both of what Caitlin and B said. Like, in any good dark academia book, it's had those things at the cornerstone, right? So, like, it's had the dark themes or, like, you know, they're going through dark time, whatever you want to call it. It's usually got some kind of power dynamic situation or it's got enough characters where there's still kind of a power dynamic going on. Like, uh, we'll talk about a little bit in mine. Um, and every... I've seen it described by a couple other people just like in research that I've done, but like usually at the middle of a really good dark academia story, the characters are studying certain types of curriculum at whatever school they're going to. And almost always it ha it's something to do with the arts, whether that be like linguistics or classics or theater or music or writing like it's all it's never like stem it's it's always something on that side of the spectrum i think it should be stem as well i think it should be stem we should do more dark academia stem i mean i'm not mad about that idea like i am not against it i think i could be wrong but i think the new one that's coming out by ava thorne i think they might be stem i mean like I don't know. If you could ask Aaliyah. She stares down the barrel of a microscope like literally eight hours a day. That's enough to drive anybody to murder. Yeah, and Vicious by V.E. Schwabs definitely has Dark Academia vibes. It just does not stay in the vibes. Like, it goes off from there. But like, right. it could... It's only like the first quarter. Yeah, it could definitely like have continued on that path and still be Dark Academia despite being like mostly STEM. It could have. Absolutely. The one thing we can all agree on is like, Dark Academia is hard to pin down, but I know it when I see it. Exactly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Despite our differences about these violent delights, I still agree it's Dark Academia. I just didn't like it. Yeah, and like, it's like you said before. People look at it and they think, if I hit this vibe, this book's going to be good no matter what. And it's going to go over well with everyone. But that's just simply, like, not the case. Like, if you get the vibes great, that's fine and all, but like... The content needs to be good, too. It's so I'm assuming you brought this up because you have a dark academia book. Yes, exactly. And like I was wary of labeling the book I'm talking about as dark academia because I didn't want someone to pick it up and expect it to be like if we were villains, because it's definitely not that. Nothing so, will ever be if we were villains. Exactly. It's And it, that's fine. That's the way it oh, should yeah. be. 1000%. The book I want to talk about is The Whispering Dark by Kelly Andrew. I've heard of this book. Yes. And I have the Owl Crate version of this. And it came with like a little letter from the author that I really liked. And I would like to read some of it to you guys. I love when you bring author letters to the podcast. You've done it a couple of times. I think so. Yeah. And I love it every fucking time. It's so great. It's uh, The letter says, The story began with the discovery of a little girl's notebook full of gel pen notations and butterfly doodles. Page after page was flooded with detailed memories of a boy who never existed and who no one remembered. Then she continues on and later she says, This book is a love letter to that journal and that lonely little girl. It's a story about loneliness, love and loss. It's about saying goodbye. It's about a girl who dreamt up the entire world in silence and a boy who no one remembered. Oh my god. Yeah, right? I read this before reading the book and I was like, that's adorable. I really want to know like how it ties into this. Can I yeah. just say that um, I went to add this book to my Goodreads because obviously, 
And the first sentence grabbed me because it says the Raven Boys meets Ninth House. We just talked about this, Kristen. You can't trust that. I know, but the Raven Boys? <laughs> Come on. And Lady said it was good, so. I haven't read any of these books, so I cannot like tell you if it fits with the vibes at all. So, yeah, I guess you'll have to read and see. Let's get into the story then. Just like the author of this book, Delaney Meyers Petrov lost her earring during the, her childhood. And since then, she's been hearing like whispers in the dark and she sees things that no one else seems to see. And because of that, she's terribly afraid of the dark. She feels like the shadows are always like creeping in towards her or like staring at her. Sometimes she sees like faces in them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And since she became deaf, her parents have been overprotective of her. They homeschooled her, but then when Lane reaches the age to go to college, she wants to go to a physical school, even though her parents insist that she should, like, try homeschooling or, like, there's, like, online college programs. She doesn't want any of that. Like, her parents tell her not, like, they try to tell her not to, and that it's just, like, a piece of paper that doesn't define her. But Lane, she yearns for it. She yearns for, like, learning and she wants to prove herself and she wants to be defined by what she can do and not because, like, for her disability and her, like, fear of the dark and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So... She applies to a scholarship program, and the program would pay for her tuition in full as long as she goes wherever she's placed. And sure enough, she gets accepted to one school based on her, quote, decidedly unique capabilities, mm. which mm. What? she does not know what that means at all. She kind of, like, when she took the, either. when she took the exam, they kind of just, like, stopped her midway and they were like, okay, you're done. And she thought she had just, like, failed for some reason. Oh, no. Yeah, but then she got the letter, and the letter said that she was accepted to the school. The school is Godbold's School for Neo-Anthropological Studies, a prestigious yet controversial program where students learn to cross between worlds. Sounds hella cool. Yeah, right? Neo-anthropological. I'm just, like, gonna sit with that for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, neo-anthropological. When she gets to the university, she meets her TA for one of the class, Colton Price, school prodigy and a total jerk. Excellent. I, hate I the love name Colton. him so I much. I hate the name Colton. Yeah, no, I get it. Same. It's too American for me. But I love this boy. As a teacher, we have opinions about names and Colton. Ugh. Not a good name. What did you say? He's a total jerk? It fits. It oh, fits. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the adults in this book are like, this fucking guy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a know-it-all. And he has no respect for authority. He's gonna, like, basically, like, he just lives on his own schedule and he doesn't care about any, like, he, he's smart and he knows he's smart. Like, that kind of thing. My beloved. Yes, <laughs> oh, I love him. So this book gives both of their point of view. And you learn early on that Colton actually knows Lane. When he was nine, he died. But then he woke up from his death and there was a little girl there talking to him. And he feels connected to her in a way. He has like a giant crust that he never managed to get rid of. And yes, I just brushed over the fact that he died when he was nine. Yeah, go back. What? (laughs) The book does that as well. So like, you have to get on with the the story. Like, he dies when he's nine. Okay. (laughs) All right. I really am getting Raven Boy flashbacks. Anyways. (laughs) Good. And now that they're in the same school, though, like, Colton has been specifically warned against befriending her. He was warned to stay away or else. So oh, he, that, that's why he acts like a jerk to her. He's trying to keep her away, but they are still, like, gravitating towards each other. Okay. Yeah. Lane's roommate, Adia, she sees a boy reaching for her when she looks through mirrors. And then their other friend is a psychic. And Lane doesn't really think there's anything special about her. Like, Colton can open, like, he can basically just, like, tear holes into the wall into the world and just like go to another world but lane doesn't like see anything like that special with her but when she turns off her earring aid she can hear voices in the dark and she doesn't realize that that's part of like what makes her special and basically what made her be able to go into the school as far as i can tell okay yeah how did they then notice that from the test I don't know. Never mind. I All have right. no idea. Oh, uh, sorry. I should have. I should have mentioned. I have not finished this book. <laughs> should have All mentioned right. that. I'm not, yeah, I have not finished this book, and I don't want to spoil it anyway, so it doesn't matter. That's why I'm staying very vague in the stuff that I say. But then students start turning up dead. First of all, like that guy that Adia, the roommate, sees in the mirror. 
she's the first one that they realize like turns up dead. So she okay. sees him across like across the mortal plane or whatever. Basically, yeah. yeah. Okay. She, she could she would she, she would see him in the mirror when he was alive and then one day she was looking through a mirror or something and she saw him basically getting torn to shreds. Oh. No. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> and so she told Lane and she told that other friend that then they started being like freaked out and like asking questions about it. And so Lane having somewhat of a friendly relationship with Colton, she asks him about it and he claims he doesn't know anything about it. And Lane is convinced that he's lying, but then she gets the con- the confirmation that he is lying when she sees his name written on a wall along with the names of the students who have gone missing or died, including that guy who just died. Like his name is also on the wall. Ooh. But Colton died. Oh, she doesn't know. She doesn't oh, know. Sorry. Yeah. And so like he's clearly involved in some sort of cult, but he can't or won't talk about it. That also explains like like the whole like thing at the beginning with Colton has been warned against talking to her. It's part of that whole like culty thing that's clearly going on in the background. And yeah, so I haven't finished this book yet, but I don't want to spoil it for you all. Like I, I want you guys to read it. I love this book. Yeah. I love the vibes. I love the like like kind of magicy stuff, but that's like sciency at the same time. I love Colton. He's a piece of shit. He's rude. He's sad. He's pathetic. I want them to be yep. happy together. Checking all the boxes. Or I want them to be tragically sad together. I haven't decided yet. Like, it could go both ways and I would be happy with it. It's so rare to find a dark academia that does magic in a good, like, in a way that isn't bad. Like, again, yeah. like a lesson in vengeance. Like, or no, there wasn't magic. And there was, like, kind of magic. They it had, was, like, like yeah, Wiccan. Yeah, this was Wiccan. Yeah, stuff, um, right? uh, the only other, like, magic Dark Academia that I've read is the Atlas Six, and it fucking sucked. <laughs> I'd love to read a good one. Yeah, so far this one's good. So, highly recommend. This sounds like it's rated E for exactly my shit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like all of us could get something out of it. Like, Kristen yeah. for the Dark Academia, you for, like, the whole, like, whimsy, like, magic-y stuff. Yeah. And for B, there's a lot of, like, there a lot are, like, some classic references for... Each part of the story, the quote at the beginning of the sto- of the part, are all from the the Aeneid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That really is like Colin B's. I was huh? like on the borderline, and then you just mentioned the Aeneid, so I'm here for it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love I love when a like book has a magic system or characters that have magic that is either like really hyper specific magic powers or magic powers that are literally in not useful in almost any context whatsoever this sounds so far up my alley yes yeah it's cool sounds awesome like i said i'd heard of it before um but i hadn't i don't know i I might have heard it because i saw it on al crate's instagram or something but yeah i I will i I, I think i've mentioned it. it before or i sent a picture when i received the book or something could be you won me over yay So, given your argument in our chat, I know that Kristen also has a Dark Academia book to talk about. I do. So, we've talked about it, like, on the previous episode and before, but, like, I have been in, like, such a reading slump, and I just can't get myself to read anything of, like, any substance. I've pretty much been, like, on a binge of mediocre romance books or, like, silly reads that I know will make me laugh, and I don't take them seriously or look too much into them. Um, This is for like a lot of reasons, personal life changes. I'm still getting used to living in a new place. I have a crippling addiction to a new game that Caitlin got me addicted to. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. uh, Go download Wildflowers if you haven't. So I actually started a book that I was really very excited to bring here. Um, But I ended up like Lady, I did not finish it in time. And I want to finish it in time because it will, if I think it's going where it's going, it'll make or break the book. So I just want to make sure Um, So instead of talking about that book, since I'm not done, I've decided to bring something else. And it's a book that I haven't shut the fuck up about it since I read it in 2021. And it rewired my brain chemistry. So yes, that's right. We're talking about if we were villains today. Yes! Oh my (laughs) god! Oh my god! You Um, held that close. You just like, oh, Dark Academia book. And we're kind of like, well, that's your MO. I didn't want to spoil it because I, I just didn't want to spoil it. And with you, like, Dark Academia book could be anything, so I would never have guessed that that's what you were going to do. Yeah, um, I, I knew I want to talk about this book here, but I wanted to do it justice. And when I was sitting down yesterday, I was like, I'm not going to get this book done in time. 
and I have the time to prepare to talk about this book now. So I'm going to finally do it. And so here we are. Um, so if you've been around me or have listened to a single episode of this podcast, you know about my unhinged obsession with this book. When I first picked it up, I had remembered hearing about it from one other person that I follow on Tumblr. Um, and I don't even remember how I followed them, but that was all they posted about for a really long time. And then I saw it at my local indie bookstore and I kind of thought, well, hey, you know, that one person really liked this and the cover's really nice, so I'll just buy it. I did not know and could not have ever fathomed what picking that book up was going to do to my psyche and me as a person. Um, so let's talk about it. If We Were Villains begins on the day that Oliver Marks, our narrator, is released from prison for the murder of a fellow student 10 years ago. As he's being released, the detective who put him behind bars is actually waiting for him, and he's wanting the story of what actually happened to this boy that got murdered 10 years ago. So the book's laid out in flashes back to the past, but also while Oliver and Detective Colburn are talking in present time. So every act begins with like Oliver and Detective Colburn talking, and then you get scenes laid out um, because the whole book is laid out like um what is it called like a like when you read your scenes on paper like a table read yeah it, it's all laid out like that like a script it's all laid out like a script even the dialogue is written like how you would see it written if you're reading a script um it's really cool i love the format of this book so the best way that i can talk about the characters and lay them out is with ml rio's own words um so she writes quote enter the players there were seven of us then Seven bright young things with wide, precious futures ahead of us. Until that year, we saw no further than the books in front of our faces. Um, so the seven characters that we have is Oliver, James, Richard, Wren, Philippa, Meredith, and Alexander. And they are exactly what you would expect from young, talented, and mostly rich Shakespeare students. They're pretentious. They are pretentious. They are egotistical. They're dramatic. And most of them are somewhere on the queer spectrum. Hey. They constantly quote Shakespeare as like typical dialogue. They'll just be talking and then they'll break into a Shakespeare quote and everybody else thinks it's so fucking weird, but they do it like it's going out of style and it's weird and quirky and it's, I, I, I don't know. I just love all of them. So much. Characters that I would want to punch in real life. Oh, yeah. Like, if tracks. I ever met these people in real life, I would hate them so much. But in this setting, it works. I know people like this. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't know. They're bizarre creatures in every way that they interact with each other and other people. They would die for each other, but they want to claw at each other at the same time. They're all in love, but they hate each other. Their dynamic is one that I've never quite read about before. Uh, the closest thing I can think of is probably the Raven Boys, honestly, but it's intriguing in the way that this dynamic is written. Uh, if you know anything about Shakespeare or theater or literature or movies in general, you'll know about archetypes. So it's like a prototype on which people build characters, and there's so many different ones, but in this novel, we obviously focus on seven. So it's the hero, the sidekick, the tyrant, the villain, the femme fatale, the ingenue, and the chameleon. All of the seven characters I listed before, these characters fit into these roles in every aspect of their life, not just on the stage. So initially, you'd think kind of that it would make their actions really predictable, but it doesn't. It's kind of hard to explain without completely giving away the plot, but despite certain characters falling into these different archetypes, when the story closes, almost all of them have completely changed course and have taken on someone else's archetype instead of the one they started with. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And like watching the um, like the downfall or the rise up of these different people is so interesting. Everyone's arc in this book is just so good and like delicious. So when the story begins, Oliver and the rest of the seniors who I listed that I or that I just mentioned have just started their final year at Delacher Classical Conservatory. You watch as they navigate various plays that they're going to perform through the year and the drama that ensues based on like casting, relationships gone wrong, etc. Jealousy is like the root of this story and it lingers under the surface of every interaction that these characters have, romantic or otherwise. It makes the tension super thick, but it also makes the way they feel about each other 
romantic when it otherwise wouldn't be. Everything is like homoerotic, basically. Like this whole book is just full of homoerotic energy. All of the jealousy reaches its precipice in one distinct moment um, when James is cast as Macbeth for their annual performance on Halloween. So every Halloween, it's kind of a surprise. They, they'll get like a letter in their mailbox and it'll say, you're going to play this character. Here's the lines you need to prepare. Show up in a certain place and that's it. And you don't know who anybody's going to be. It's all a surprise. Somehow it works every year. It's kind of, when you watch it play out on the page, it's really interesting to see like how they prepare and do all this stuff as it's going because they have no idea like, other than their own lines, they're clueless until they get on the stage. It's, it's really cool. Um, so Richard, who we could call James's rival in archetype and daily life, um, because Richard would classify as a tyrant and James would classify as the hero. Um, anyway, Richard is, like, horrifically jealous of the casting decision of James as Macbeth and feels like the role belongs to him. And so, as you can imagine, like, just based on what I've already told you about how these characters are and how they walk through life, this leads to awful, terrible things. Because all this jealousy just builds up over time and gets worse and worse. And it breaks apart all of the relationships inside this group and destroys the dynamic that they've built over the last four years. And so what was once their archetype, as I said before gets flipped upside down and what they once were, they aren't any longer. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, wow, all this drama over a simple casting decision, then I wouldn't blame you initially. I think the problem that people come across when it comes to If We Were Villains is that it sounds ridiculous and over the top, but it's supposed to. I've been a theater kid. I know what these people are like. Yeah, that's the kind of people they are. it's, It's seven young, pretentious assholes at art school, fighting over something, like, that's meaningless and petty. But that's, like, the fucking point. Like, it's like you guys said, if you are a theater kid or if you know a theater kid, that's just how people are. Like... That's just how they are. That's just how they are. Oliver makes a point in the book even about this because he... And he explains it a little bit better than I could because he says, Shakespeare's real, but his characters live in a world of real extremes. They swing... From ecstasy to anguish, love to hate, wonder to terror. It's not melodrama, though. They're not exaggerating. Every moment is crucial. So when it comes to all seven of them, they're kind of like living in a balance, right? They all have their tics, these little things that have probably been building up for years. Um, There's lingering homophobia in the group. There's jealousy. There's unrequited love. There's resentment and hatred. There's all these different prejudices. They've been sitting on these feelings this entire time. And while this tiny, somewhat silly moment of someone not getting the role that they think they deserve, it might seem insignificant. It's just the tipping point. This is what pushed all of them over the edge of the mountain and what started all of this terrible stuff that happens in this book. And all of this that I just mentioned makes me want to talk about the characters as a whole because they are a shining point in this novel, and I think Lady will agree with me. While the characters are pretentious and artistic and dramatic, they are relatable, and you feel everything along with them. Like, you hurt when they do, you laugh when they do. They relate so closely to Shakespeare and his characters because they all desperately want to be someone else. And I feel like when you're at this young point in your life, you know, they're all 21, 22, 23. They're looking for themselves. Yeah, they're all looking for themselves. They're all going through something. And to be able to be someone else for just a moment in their daily life, all of that is relatable. And I think we all have You show me a 21-year-old who hasn't identified with a character a little bit too much. Exactly. And I will give you a million dollars. It's like hyperfixations, but theirs is on Shakespeare. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's what they know. That it's what like of course they're gonna be pretentious and like holier than thou, because it's like it's Shakespeare, but also like you see the same thing in fandoms. It's just less yeah. pretentious because it's fandom. Yeah. Right. So um, towards the end of the book, James ends up making a comment about how it's easier to be Romeo or Macbeth or Brutus or Edmund to be someone else. And like I said before, each one of them goes through the hardest year of their life during this novel. They're tested and destroyed in a relatively short amount of time. Like I said, not to mention that all of these characters are tortured in some way. 
either by vanity or self-righteousness, um, always being second best, wanting something different, being unloved by their family, and some even like one or more of these. So it's, it's not, we just said it, but it's like not hard to see how they could hyper-focus on this one thing and want to be someone else so badly and to focus on it and put all their energy into this. There's this great scene where, I'm not going to spoil it or like what's happening, but there's this great scene where James is drunk and all he does is speak in Shakespeare and specifically in characters that he has played, I think. He does not speak as himself for the whole time. Oh my it's god. hilarious <laughs> and also super tense and super like dramatic of a scene. Like it's a very, it's a very heavy scene. Say, it's one of the saddest parts of the novel. Yes, but this guy's just talking in Shakespeare the whole time, which is also kind of funny. But when you think about it, very, very sad. Yeah, especially because of the reason that he's doing it. And yeah. like, so you just have to read it to understand. But yeah, I mean, and they, they do this stuff all the time. And like, it's like Lady said, when you first kind of read it, I get, it's it's almost funny because it's like, you're so fucking weird. But when you go back and read it, it's like, it's almost depressing because it's like, he wants to be someone else so badly. But that's it. Like when you're that young and you have to, if you don't have the examples of good living from your own personal experience, one of the ways you seek it is through literature, for example. And so for me, it just reads of just the, it's like that perversion of reading more and more and more, not just as escapism, but to see the models of what, you know, what other living there is besides what you have in your own personal experience. And this gets back into like, you know, one of the ways that you potentially, you know, whether it's autism and masking, but also just trauma in general and masking, like what mask do you put on? to like filter or or put up a barrier between like your real self and the rest of the world and it is it's like i see that with so many theater kids as an educator but what's the role that you play what kind of role do you put on that morning before you have to face down everything else that you see during the day and then this is like the full perversion of that where it's like do you lose yourself in putting on these roles Oh, absolutely. Um, I think even, is it Oliver that makes the comment? I I'm can't thinking remember. about a quote too, but I don't remember what the quote is. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Oliver. He even makes the point like that James is big on um, method acting. So like he will get into a character heavily. Um, there's even, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but there's a point where I think they were doing a Midsummer's Night Dream and like James was trying to act like a tiger because of a character that he was playing or something. And like, he like pounced on him in the middle of the night, like while they were sleeping. Hey. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, he's just like the total fucking weirdos, but I love them so much. Like, but anyway, that that's James does this kind of thing where he does it. And Oliver makes the comment, like, you know, sometimes it was really hard to get him out of a mind space of a, of the character that he's playing. Like he could not step outside of the role because he would get so deep into it. And, it, you know, it's just with everything that he's going through and trying to be someone else and be someone new, it's, it all has to do with what you just said, basically. Um, I just love every single person in this book. They all have so many layers to them. Each person brings something to the page. I really, really love Oliver, mostly because I relate to him in, like, every way possible. For one thing, he is a bisexual disaster. He is the textbook definition of a bisexual disaster. For another, like, he just doesn't see his own worth. He's been stuck in this sidekick mentality his entire life, especially with his best friend James, because he just always worries that he's not as talented as him or as the rest of the group and that he will never measure up or be good enough for any of them. And he constantly questions himself at all turns. He's just like this soft-spoken boy, but he's an, a powerful individual who will do anything for the people that he loves, even if it leads to his own detriment. Like, I just, I want to hold Oliver Marks in my arms and give him the love that he desperately, desperately needs. I'm just reminded of your argument <clears throat> in the tournament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to get emotional probably. So basically, there's two big reasons that I love this book. Well, I mean, there's more than two, but I there's two that I want to point out here because I think it's what makes the book stand out among so many that wish that they were as good as this book. And yes, I'm looking at you, the Atlas Six. The first is the foreshadowing. It is so perfectly intertwined 
with the story and it is flawless. I have read this book about five or six times now, um, but today I actually picked it up because I was flipping through a couple pages trying to find a line that I wanted to read, um, which led me down like a casual work time research, you know, how, how it is. Um, and I found a clue that I had missed despite how many times I have read this book and this particular moment in the book. And it like completely rocked my world. I messaged everyone here and I was like, I just found out something that like completely, like it, it made me want to throw up the more that I thought about it. Um, and I catch clues like this all the time, like every time I read it. And it's not because like I'm missing them or like not reading the book well. I mean, I've analyzed this book so much, I'd probably drive the author fucking crazy at this point. It's just like Kate went the locked tomb at this point. But it's just because all of the details are so seamless and they work so well that you don't catch them until your second or third read because you don't even think that you have to think about it that deep, but everything is just woven in so masterfully and it's, it's fantastic. The second thing about this book that stands out is the prose and just the writing itself. This is a debut novel. You would never know that. No. You would never, ever guess in your wildest dreams that this was ML Rio's first novel. The prose in this book and the writing is unlike anything that I've ever read in my life. Her knowledge and love of Shakespeare and just like literature in general shines through the page. She knows how to weave a story, but make it poetic at the same time. And I, I kid you not, I could find a beautiful line on every single page. Um, I picked three. There's like a million that I could read, but some of the, some of these are favorites of mine and some of them I just found today and I thought they were pretty and I'd bring them up. Um, the first one is for someone who loved words as much as I did, it was amazing how often they failed me. This is my favorite one. It stuck with me so much. When I first read this line, I was like, this is going to be my favorite book of all time. Like, I just knew. I, I know you have a print of that in your room too, in your office. I do because it's like you said, it, I related to it so heavily and oh i don't know um another one i found was you can't quantify humanity you can measure it not the way that you mean to people are passionate and flawed and valuable um and the last one is this one's like in relation to something else it's like he's talking about something but um it says the water too was still and i thought what liars they are the sky and the water still and calm and clear like everything was fine it wasn't fine and really it never would be again Oh, I just want to hug him. I know. Oliver, please. He's going through so much. I could go on and on and on and on and on um, about every aspect of this book. But my closing point is that you are never going to read another book like this one. The only book that I could ever compare to this is The Secret History. But that book pales in comparison to this one. I read The Secret History after I read If We Were Villains and I thought the it was boring and not <laughs> nearly like as, I don't know, like it felt like the author when they wrote it, they didn't have a love for what they, because in that book, they're talking a lot about classics because all of them study um, ancient Greek. Um, and like, I just felt like you could tell that the author did not give a fuck about what all the characters were studying and like it made this it kind of boring um and then like none of the characters were relatable at all um like even though the characters in if we were villains are as we said like pretentious assholes like you could still relate to them they all go through something that you've been through before in your life the people in the secret history are the complete opposite you have like nothing fucking in common with any of them and like i'm someone if i can't relate to the characters in my book i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like it so, like, if you've read The Secret History and you kind of thought, man, this is kind of boring, but you liked the premise of it, you'll love this book because it takes the premise and makes it better and builds on it. Um, I've never, like, been drawn into a story like this one. This book literally left me breathless when I finished it. I was, like, flipping the page over to make sure that I didn't miss something. And, like, I was floored when I realized that it was over because... And Lady can attest, like, the ending is, it, like, smacks it's you rough. in the face. Oh, it's, it's rough. rough. It beats you up. It smack. It corners you in the alley and beats the fuck out of you. Like, it's, and when I turned the page and realized it was done, I was like, I can't believe that she did this to me. Like, what have you done to me? I've agonized over this book. I've cried over it. 
I've wanted to take some of the characters and break their neck between my bare hands. It's just like, if we were villains, completely changed my life, as cheesy and lame as it sounds. Because I read this book during a very, very, very dark point in my life. And having it there to read and to cherish was so vital, especially whenever it had characters in there that I could relate to that were going through the same thing as me. Because while I was going through a dark time, so was everybody else in that book. And somehow, some way, they all made it out of it alive. And, well, most of them did. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> you know, because we all know there's a murder in this. But it was just like the point that like all of them went through this really, really dark year. And at the end of it, they moved on and everything was fine. And so I, I don't know, like I won't rest until I've preached to every person I know. And now on this public platform about how good and brilliant, like absolutely brilliant this book is and how well it's written, how deep, like, all of the story goes and like Emma Rio's just like a she's a fucking genius. Like, and in this book, like I said it before, but like you could really tell how much she cared about this book and how much research and time that she spent into it to weave the story that she did, especially whenever you find clues and little pieces that you missed every time because of how well they're woven in. And yeah. So please, please be please. If, if you have ever thought about reading this or maybe you haven't thought about it, I urge you to pick it up and to read it because like I said, you won't read anything else like it. And that is a good thing. It's honestly like when lady told me she was going to read it, I didn't know if she'd like it because it just didn't seem like something that would capture her attention, but she fell in love with it just like I did. Yeah, I, I I love good I love good characters. I was afraid that I would not vibe with it because I know nothing about Shakespeare because I am not natively an Anglophone like an English speaker. So, but yeah, I really liked it. It's like so well crafted, and the characters are like you said, weirdly relatable. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a characters gal for sure. So if it has good characters, it can hold my attention, even if the subject matter isn't really my steez. I found the quote that I was looking for about the characters and how they're like into Shakespeare, but like in a way that's like, it makes sense for like a 20, 21 year old, like looking for themselves. The quote is, it was just us, the seven of us and the trees and the sky and the lake and the moon. And of course, Shakespeare, he lived with us like an eight housemate. An older, wiser friend, perpetually out of sight, but never out of mind, as if he had just left the room. Like, these characters are so into, like, they're so deep into their heads. So, of course, they're pretentious. Of course, they're, like, so full of themselves. They're, like, yeah, way too deep in the sauce. They are. But we've all been there. We've all been there. Like, we've all hyper-focused on this one thing and made it our entire personality and, like, probably been the annoying. The of the air. Yeah, literally, like... You know, it's just, it's a thing that any young person or even older person, like, that can relate to. Like, if you've ever been a part of fandom as a whole, you can relate to these people so much. And it just makes the book incredibly gripping from the very beginning. Because whenever this book opens, after you get past, like, Oliver getting out of prison, and you get, like, the first real scene of all seven of them together, they're talking about auditioning for Julius Caesar. And like this interaction like already is so uh, like gripping because you get, you already know like how they're going to interact through the whole book based on this tiny little thing that they're talking about. Wasn't like, what's his face, Richard, like kind of a dick straight on from that chapter, like from that first point? Yeah, like in the first scene that you get of them, you could, you could pinpoint their archetype immediately. And like, it's like I said before, like a lot of people think this is a problem and they're like, you know, she didn't have to take these archetypes and, to, and made them so literal, but that's the fucking point. Like she's building this novel like a Shakespeare play. Everything is extreme. Everything is dramatic. Everything is like raw and like in your face. That's the point. They're supposed to fall into these roles and that's what ML Rio wants you to do. But unlike, you know, maybe in a Shakespeare play, whenever this story kind of reaches its climax and everything gets twisted upside down, 
they all end up taking on a new role. And even though it, it's, it's kind of in another extreme, like, I don't know. I just don't know how to explain this in like the best words, but it's just, it's just so good. And like every interaction like builds on their, um, like on their arc and you can kind of tell as the book weaves, like where they're going to go. And like, especially with, like, and when you finally get to the end, like it's, it's all just so it's like bittersweet. Like that's the only way I can talk about this book is like, it's so good, but it's bittersweet because things work out, but they kind of don't. And it's just, it's, it's hard to explain without completely giving away the plot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I love it so much. Like I said, I can go on and on and on. I could talk about this book for seven hours. That's how you want to be with your favorite book, though. Yeah. Every time I think about it, like, I remember, like, um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but, like, me and Caitlin have a chat where all we do is talk about the locked tomb. And I could do that with uh, If We Were Villains. I could have I, – I messaged um, Emily today and because I, I didn't want to tell a lady what I thought of today. Yes, you ne- no, you need to tell me. You have to message me afterwards. Yeah, I, I will tell you when we get off. But um, I told Emily, I was, like, I was like, Emily, I can't keep it anymore. I have to tell you what I figured out. And she was like, oh, my fucking God. Like, I was like, it floored me. Like, I, I was thinking about it all day. I was like in the kitchen making my dinner. And I'm like, fucking Melanie. Like, she she knew what she was doing when she put this in there. I don't know. She, the woman's a genius. Like, her and Tamsin Mirror, they could write the most fucking buckwild book of all time. Because they're both insane geniuses in the way that they build collab when please but yeah that was my book um i hope i sold you i hope you read it um it'll change your life you'll love it i can i can guarantee i've never recommended this book to anyone and they didn't love it it's been sitting on my shelf for the better part of like two years waiting for the right mood to strike me with it well soon this this fall so we're coming up on fall fall or winter is the perfect time to the first time i read it was winter and it was perfect. So, yeah, that was it. That was it. Awesome. I was wondering when you were going to finally break. We knew it would happen. For I was sure. wondering when one of us was finally going to break and bring, like, all-time favorite novel to the podcast. Well, I, I guess it was me. Well, no, B talked about Darkest Part of the Forest. I was going to say, I, yeah. I broke favorites? on episode two or whatever. And I did Thorn Chapel. <laughs> is that one of your all-time favorites? It is one of my all-time favorites that I will never shut up about. All right. Well, all we knew is Caitlin needs to talk about the Starless Sea or uh, the Ninth Circus. Doesn't Gideon the Ninth count? Gideon the Ninth and the Natural History of Dragons. Gideon the Ninth kind of counts, but uh, the Night Circus has been my favorite book since I was in high school, and it will not be dislodged by anything ever. That's my all-time go-to ride or die fucking favorite. So um, I will need to talk about that at some point. I just don't know how I'm going to do that. Yeah, that 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 book's kind of difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because it's all about like vibes and abstract and like yeah. timesy wimesy like it's it's very and it's a very much a the girls who get it get it and the girls who don't don't it very much kind is. of and the girls who don't are wrong exactly the girls who don't are fucking wrong I don't know I haven't read it but you're right anyway since we were talking about dark academia people in these books often read classics like Shakespeare or like Greek classics like. Kristen said about the secret history. I know, do you guys say read classics, classics? And I'm like, which classics do you mean? <laughs> yeah, this, this this is a question for you, B. Do you read classics around? Like, what classics are your favorites? Do you like like to read them? Do you avoid them because they're too complicated? Um, so, what are your thoughts? I mean, I read ancient Greek and Latin, ancient you know ancient Roman, but I read Greek and Latin classics as my job. Um, and part of that is because I read the Indian in high school in a very dark point of my life and it changed me. So yeah, I, I read classics in that sense regularly. I, w- I probably would even if I were to switch, uh, tax in my career and such. And then classics like, you know, Lewis Carroll. And I mean, I have, I haven't read any, re- have I read any recently? I'm trying to think if I've read any recently, but, um, I have and I do. Uh, it just, I have to really be in the right moment because um, oftentimes with that you need a bit more focus when you read so it's not something as simple as reading a romance and be like cool read it quickly consume 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 you need to kind of sit with it for a bit right but so one a year maybe but that's just because it takes a little bit more sitting with it yeah i agree like that's why i avoided them for so long too 
like you said, like one a year. That's kind of why I read Candide like last year or the year before that, because I was like, I I read this book in high school and I kind of want to see, like, I liked it in high school, so I want to see, will I still like it now? So I read it again. This year I was planning on reading um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but I haven't had time to read it now. And it's like a thousand plus pages. So I was like, uh, I need, I really need to be like in the right mood for it. Yeah. I would highly recommend if you re- were, were made to read a classic in high school, the writing and the messages are often lost on high schoolers. And I totally get why. But I would recommend potentially like as an adult, go back and read some of the classics that you might have disliked, with the exception of Catcher in no. the Rye. I hated Catcher in the Rye. It sucks. <laughs> Don't bother. But go back and read like 1984 or A Brave New World. Um, some of these. Or The Great Gatsby. Right, or The Great Gatsby. Or, you know, just things that definitely, you know, had adult characters oftentimes or not, but just things that were written clearly by adults and were you were made to read as a child. Go back as an adult and try and read it. And don't judge yourself if you need to use Spark Notes or Cliff Notes to understand oh, something. Oh God, no! Do yeah. it. You know, I mean, <laughs> do it. As someone who likes Shakespeare, like I often use Cliff Notes to fully understand like what's being said. And you really should. Oh, I did read. I did read the Shakespeare book this year, and a lot of the like it wasn't that hard to read. And I don't know if it's because of like some English words, like especially older ones having French roots, and it makes it easier for me to read. Or it's just the fact that I read so much, so many books that makes it easier to read. But like even the footnotes, I wouldn't use them that much because a lot of them were like, yeah, I know what that means. Like it's just. Yeah. Yeah. I found that I enjoy classics a lot more than I like ever thought I would. Um, I have several different Shakespeare. Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite Shakespeare play. But I had an English teacher in high school that uh, I know a lot of teachers do the opposite where they make you read the book and then you get to watch the movie. Um, But this English teacher was very much a proponent of you need to see Shakespeare to understand Shakespeare before you try to read it on paper because it's their place. You know, they're supposed to be performed live. Mm -hmm. And so we watched any ones that we read. I think we did Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, uh, Much Do About Nothing and Hamlet. And we watched them all. We watched movie versions of all of them before we read them. And it helped Julius Caesar and the scene of Do You Like Snails or Oysters? I don't remember. I never paid any attention to Julius There is a super either. sexual innuendo scene of do you like snails or oysters? Anyway, moving on. Don't remember <laughs> at all. I only remember the much ado about nothing um, because we watched the most iconic version, the 1994, I think, version with Keanu and Denzel. Which is amazing. And I made everyone in my household watch it like it's a month ago. literally life-changing. Because I was just like, I need I need this and I need you all to appreciate it. And it's amazing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not only is it an incredible adaptation, but it is beautiful. Everyone is so fucking hot in that movie. It is unbearable. It really is. Of course, that's the only... We watched that, and then we watched the, like, 1960, 1950 version of Romeo and Juliet. I remember those, too. Do not remember any of the other... Well, I remember Hamlet. That's one of my favorites, also. Uh, but I need to make a correction, because the snails or oysters is in Spartacus, and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but I very much found myself, like, enjoying classics a lot more as I was older. I mean, I really... I think the only book I ever remember reading in school and actually liking was The Great Gatsby. And even now, going back as an adult, the line, they slunk back into their money and their vast carelessness, no matter who they smashed up. Like, that line has stuck with me for probably 15 years now of just reading that the very first time and now as an adult actually knowing people who are like that in my life and like you really do relate to these things a lot more the older that you get oh yeah these themes of adulthood and change that you cannot you do not have the capacity to understand whenever you're in high school oh exactly and it's just this whole other world of literature and i'm i'm kind of the same way where i can't sit down and like read classic after classic but I usually read more than one book at once, so I'll like read maybe 10 or 15 pages of a classic novel and then read one of my other ones and like I'll I'll come back to it from time to time Mm -hmm. when I want something that makes me think a little bit more. And so I usually read like one or two a year too. That's I'm doing that with a book that's like written about uh, like the troubles in Ireland and it's definitely written in like the tome heavy like epic kind of narrative and it's called Exit Unicorn. And yeah, it's it's like I have to like read a bit of it, put it down. 
read a bit of it, <laughs> put it down. Um, yeah, so it's just been sitting yeah. on my story graph for like a year of like I'm reading it. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of the same. I read a couple a year. I typically read. I like to read Pride and Prejudice like every year, um, just because of who I am as a person. Um, but I know like we were talking about ones we read in high school. Two that I liked in high school and like even more as an adult is um, Fahrenheit 451 and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I really liked them in high school and like reading them as an adult like is so different and I still like them. I liked Wuthering Heights too. I don't know if anybody else did, but I liked it. To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Fahrenheit 451 were two books that I wink, read, wink in school <laughs> where I did not actually read them. Oh, I just I wrote an essay on them. them. You should go back. Oh, yeah. Just, I have them both. Yeah. Uh, the When I was teaching um, world history and paired with a ninth grade classroom, one of, it's, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is like the most assigned book in American schools. But if done right, it is an enormously valuable book to 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 read um especially when you're young but even if you haven't now like read it now yeah i'm i'm pretty excited because i got a um like a season ticket for um a, the theater that's local to me and they do like broadway and stuff like that but this year they're doing to kill a mockingbird like the play live and um i'm like very excited to see it because it was probably my favorite high school assigned reading, and it always kind of stuck with me. I even like the movie. Um, so I don't so remember- watch the movie with Gregory Peck and then just Daddy. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, so good. But yeah, so like I'm excited to see it, and like B said, like it's got very valuable lesson in it, and like especially growing going to a school where I did in a um, largely white kind of racist community. I felt like it was important for our school to read it and the message didn't always land, but I did appreciate it and I did like it. And like everybody else said, I kind of read like one or two a year. I I read Pride and Prejudice every year, but then I try to pick up a new one. Like I just got a bunch of copies of Shakespeare plays and I'm going to go through them this year. I got like Hamlet, Macbeth, um, A Midsummer's Night Dream. Like I've I've read them all before, but I want to go back through them and read them a little bit better. Did you get those from the thrift store? I did. Ah, oh, nice. Um, I didn't mention, and I should mention, because this is another one of my like all-time favorites, is uh, The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. You can tell that I really like big, absurd kind of ensemble cast comedies where it is just nobody knows what's actually going on. Somebody is always pretending to be somebody else, and that's much to do about nothing, Importance of Being Earnest. And I cannot recommend the Colin Firth version the movie version of importance of being the importance of being earnest enough like it's so funny colin firth is amazing in everything he does but it's hilarious you should watch it um that's another one of my favorite classics i love this discussion yeah our most cerebral discussion to date i think honestly yeah i think like knowing people's favorite classics tells a lot tells you a lot about them as a person like good or bad yeah and so like it's kind of interesting like hearing what everybody said because i i that is something about you three that I did not know anything about except for uh, B's love of the Aeneid. Like other than that, like I didn't know anybody's favorite classic. So it was kind of I haven't read a lot of classics and even the ones that I have read would mean nothing to you because I wasn't raised in the American school system, right? So <laughs> yeah. like if you're talking about Fahrenheit four fifty one and I'm like, I'm never gonna read this. Like you can tell me all you want to read it. I am never reading this. It's so good though. Um I would be interested to for us to do like a a classics exchange, which is not anything that we need to talk on the podcast about, but I just want to know what everybody's favorite is and, and we can exchange them. Yeah. But we can even talk about it on here if we wanted to. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Hell yeah. Until then, we will see you guys next time. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find us at Red in the Dark Pod on Instagram and Tumblr. Our email is redinthedarkpod at gmail.com if you want to ask a questions about any of the books we discussed this episode. We also have a book club. You can find us at Warren Page Library on Instagram and Tumblr, which will have details on how to join our Discord. Finally, we're hosting some challenges on Storygraph through the book club, which you can find by searching Warren Page Library's Book of the Month and Warren Page Library's 23 for 2023 in the challenges section of the app. Ladies' book from this episode was The Whispering Dark by Kelly Andrew. Kristen's book was If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. We also mentioned Looking for Alaska by John Green. Vicious by V.E. Schwab, The Atlas Six by Olivia Blake, The Aeneid by Virgil, 
The Secret History by Donna Tartt, The Folk of the Air by Holly Black, The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, Candide by Voltaire, The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, Much Ado About Nothing and Other Works by William Shakespeare, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, and Exit Unicorns by Cindy Brandner. Keep reading, and we'll see y'all next time. Bye! Bye! Bye. Bye.